Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga with College Coach. For today's show, we'll have only two segments. For the second segment, Shannon Vesconcelos, College Coach Finance Educator and Getting In Podcast Team Member, will be joining me to answer listener questions, which is always fun. And remember, by the way, we have listener question segments all the time, so be sure to submit yours. We do try and get to them. Uh, One easy way to do so, by the way, is just via our Facebook page. You can just look for College Coaches' Facebook page and message us. Uh, But for our first segment, we're lucky enough to have as a guest Joe Jackalone of Marist College. Um, He's also past president of the International Association of College Admission Counselors. Um, He is the executive director of international enrollment for Marist College's New York State campus. And he's also, by the way, a Marist graduate, which tells you how much he loves the school. I think Marist is pretty great, so I don't mind having him on here to... uh, to kind of like boost such a great place, but his primary purpose is going to be discussing tips for international students who are applying to college in the U.S. Welcome, Joe. Hi, Sally. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so glad that you're here. It's really, really helpful for us to have, you know, a point of view of someone who's really, you know, in the thick of it, so who's making those, well, those decisions. Applying to college for any student is going to be a complex process, but especially if you're coming from a non-U.S. centric place, it can be even even more complex. So I'm more than happy to help either dispel some rumors or make it a little bit easier for someone applying to the United States. Mm-hmm. Great, great. Yeah. Yeah, we're here to serve the students, you know? I mean, really, like, to make it as easy as possible for them. So, mm-hmm. um, all right. So I don't – we can't, unfortunately, go too – sort of macro on this because we only have about 20 minutes to talk about everything. But on that sort of bigger level, what is different about the U.S. college admission process compared to the process for universities outside the U.S., you know, like the Canadian system, the British system, or what have you? Sure. I think probably one of the hallmarks of the U.S. educational systems, and in some cases, uh, which can be a downside for uh, students applying from outside the U.S., is just the vast variety of systems and the vast variety of options. You're almost, you're almost crippled by the amount of choice available to you because there are close to three to, three to 4,000 colleges and universities in the United States. So from the, the best advice when starting out on this journey applying to the United States, is going in understanding that the answer to most questions is going to be, it depends. Each (laughs) school will have different things going on for them. They'll have different processes for applying, how they utilize the transcripts, how they utilize letters of recommendation. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to be different uh, across the board. Then when you look at it from your home countries. Uh, perspective of applying through colleges is going to be very different. So, for instance, I mentioned letters of recommendation. That's going to be something very important for most students applying to the United States. 
uh, there might be an audition or an interview process. Uh, that interview and audition process might be uh, not only assigned to the admission process, but perhaps scholarships. So there are, there are many nuances that come into play when applying to the United States. There's many varieties. So starting out with a, a casting a very wide net, so looking at many different options, and then slowly paring it down and dialing in on what is really important to you as a student and to you as a family in, in, in terms of the type of experience you're, you're looking to achieve by coming to the United States. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I chuckled when you said it depends because I say that all the time. And I know it's so frustrating for people, but it really is the answer. We just simply don't have a fully standardized system here. Even the public schools are going to vary dramatically by state and even within them by institution. Every private school does it differently. So, um, yeah, which is why our system in some ways is so wonderful. Like you said, so much choice, but in other ways is pretty frustrating. So um, the good news is that the good news is that there will be a school out there for, for our international students, for students that are looking for that American experience in the United States. There is definitely, definitely a place here for you. You just have to take a little time to do some work, and you'll be able to find the, the best place. And there, there actually might even be multiple places that are going to fit the criteria and experience that you're looking for. Yeah. Oh, I'm 100% positive there'll be multiple experiences. And I always try and tell families, it's going to be schools in many cases that you've never heard of, um, but that are Mm -hmm. still going to give you kind of an amazing experience. So what are some sort of concrete, um, you know, pieces of advice that you give families, you know, to, to get started? I mean, you've kind of said they need to do research, they need to find out about some of these colleges. What are some of the resources where you might tell them, like, you know, start looking around for colleges? So I think the first thing you need to look at when you are looking at schools and really pare down uh, the types of schools that are going to be on your short list, and, and the concrete things to look at would be, what are the school's retention rates? What are the school's graduation rates? Uh, those are very specific numbers that are available to the public. They're available to international students. And really what, what those numbers are telling you are uh, the success of the students. And that's really going to help you weed out many options that are here in the United States. So retention rate, if you're not familiar, is for the audience. Uh, essentially, it's the percentage of students that are, that are retained at the institution. So if a school has a low retention rate, that's, uh, that might indicate that something's wrong and the, the students are leaving for one reason or another. If there's a high retention rate, that means that through the admission process and through the services available at that institution, that the uh, that, that something's going right. So you, you, I would also ask specifically what the international student retention rate is, because they can sometimes be lumped in with the general retention rate. So, for instance, at, at Maris, we have a 91% retention rate for our, our, just our international students, uh, which means that things are, things are moving well and it's a welcoming place, and I, I think that's a good number to look at. The other piece is to look at the graduation rate. How, what, what is the rate of people graduating from that institution and finding work? What is the, the rate of people graduating from those institutions and then actually uh, taking part of OPT? And if you're not familiar with that, it's, it's the ability to work in the United States, if you prefer, uh, for one year after you've completed a bachelor's degree. So how many students are taking advantage of those? Do they have the resources to help you? Because ultimately, if you're spending the money to come to the United States to have a world-class education, you want to make sure that you're getting 
your money's worth and that you are, are being set up for success when you graduate. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how do families find this information? Do you go, do they go college by college or what resource do you recommend? So uh, for that particular resource, most of the colleges will have it available to them, but you can also look at the College Board website. The College Board website has some really great data on, on institution. It's unbiased information that they collect and is, is published. And you can also look at what the, the costs are for out-of-state tuition, because most likely, as an international student, you, you're going to be paying out-of-state tuition costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. The other resource... Oops, sorry, go, go ahead, ahead. Sally. The, the other resource that I would recommend, specifically for students that are in that are, that are uh, listening from their home country or outside of the U.S., is Education USA. Education USA serves students worldwide. There is most likely an Education USA office that is located in your in your country. There are resources that are specifically designed for uh, students coming out of that country. It's it's a free service, and they have a lot of knowledge on not just how to navigate the educational experience through uh, the application process into the United States, but also resources for scholarships and aid, and would also have uh, information on those on those rates. The other okay. resource that that might be might not be as obvious is the actual people working at the school. So, for instance, most likely there is going to be an international representative at the institutions that you're you're interested in. Someone that works just with the international students in terms of reading the applications. And I would reach out to that person and ask those very pointed international specific questions about the retention rates, about the graduation rates, about anything that is international specific because they will know the students to put you in touch with, they will know the faculty to put you in touch with, and access to the other resources. So using the institutions themselves, the people that work there as a resource. Plus, if these are the people that are reading your application, they're going to want to know who you are. So maybe one of the other differences when applying to the United States is the review process. So ultimately, in a place like Marist, where we have a holistic review and we look at everything, each application is going to go to a committee decision. It's a bunch of people sitting around a, sitting around a table with applications open, discussing applicants. And it's really important to have an advocate sitting at that table. The international representative at that institution will most likely be your advocate at the committee. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you mentioned that too, because I think that there's a perception sometimes that the admission officers are just there to say no. And so what the, uh, what people don't realize is that we, we really prefer saying yes. Right. So we, we want to help students put themselves in the best position that they can be in. So do use the admission office as a resource. I think, I mean, I will say that it can vary from school to school. When I worked at the University of Chicago, it was very hard for me to get back in touch with students who, you know, emailed me and I just simply didn't do it all the time. But by contrast, when I worked at Whittier or Reed College, which were not as crazy selective, Reed's quite selective, but not as Mm -hmm. selective as a place like Chicago. Generally speaking, I was very happy to hear from students who had substantive questions who, and I would really get to know some students that way. So I'm really glad you brought that up. This, there is no downside to getting to at least shooting out an email to an admission counselor. Worst case scenario, they don't get back to you. That's the only, there's no negative impact. We love it because we have 
nearly 12,000 students applying to the college every year. If we know that someone really wants to be here and they're interested, uh, that's great for us to know. I mean, our job is not to deny people. Our job is to, as you mentioned, Sally, is to uh, admit people and bring them to the college. So more likely than not, we're looking for reasons to, to take a student, not for reasons to deny a student. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. That being said, I always like to tell people there is a difference. You don't want to necessarily, well, tell me what you think, Joe. Um, sure. Uh, we don't want weekly emails, but like emails when you have some substantive questions, there's a difference between stalking, which would be like the weekly email, and then the like every couple months or so, you know, uh, if, if something comes up. What, what would you say might be like a nice level at a place like Marist? Yeah, I think some strategic emails would be would be appropriate. So, uh, something along the lines of when you if you first discovered the school through whatever uh, search mechanism you use, or you heard about it through a friend or a family member, and you looked it up online, that you reached out to that rep and said, "I just found out about you know X, Y, or Z school, and I really think this is a great fit for me. I'm interested to learn more." Uh, can you send me more information? And usually a school will have a mechanism for, for them to capture your information and, and send you a bit more uh, a bit more information. And then as you, you can check in during the process, hey, I, I just submitted my application, just want you to know what's out there. Uh, hey, I, uh, I just saw Marist in the news, and I thought this was really cool, and uh, I hope that I could be part of the, part of the community. Uh, we, it's rare that we get students emailing us every week, and and usually if that happens, it means that it's, uh, it's an issue that we're working on, and usually it's something like completing their application and making sure that we're getting all the documents. So it being, having strategic emails going out at the right times uh, would make sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. We would never fault uh, an enthusiastic student if they were just really excited about the college and they were emailing us every week. I would just make a note that they were just very enthusiastic. Yeah, that's true. And I will say that it some of the schools I worked at, that would be the case. But I just like to make sure students know weekly emails are not going to get you into Harvard or Stanford. That's not how it works. So better <laughs> no. not to do that. In fact, that. There, are, there are schools out there where they, they just don't want to hear from you. Uh, and yeah. that's not a reflection of the school's view of you. It's just that they, they, they receive such high volume. I'm sure that that was the case, as you mentioned, at University of Chicago, that it's, it's really just impossible. So if you reach out to a school that has a, a large it's a very popular school in terms of the amount of applications they receive, and and they have a large international student population, and they have a low accept rate. You know, it, it's possible that they might not get back to you, but don't take that as a as a negative. It just could be because they are being bombarded with a lot of requests. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right. So I think I'd like to pivot to some like. Um, to kind of talk about the application itself, because I think also that international families find that pretty confusing. I mean, let's face it, mm-hmm. domestic families find it confusing, but are there important parts of the application in the U.S. that might be particularly confusing for someone who's applying from abroad? Sure. And in some ways it could be, it might sound very intrusive. So they're asking things like, how many siblings do you have? And where did your parents go to school? And where do you live? And the very specific questions that you're trying to understand, what what weight does this bring to my application? But colleges are using all this, all this information for a number of different things. So, for instance, if they're asking where your parents went to school, uh, 
they want to know what type of educational background they have. Maybe if the, your parents didn't attend university, uh, one of their initiatives might be to uh, to attract more first generation students, and, and then you would fit fit there. They they just want to get a sense of who you are and what you're about. So I think just understanding that they're going to ask a lot of questions, but they all play a small role in in the review process. And uh, and especially when it comes to the academic side, if you're an international student, just understanding that you might have to explain your educational system a bit more, especially if that school doesn't receive applications from your particular part of the world, but just helping them understand the academic rigor of the high school that you're coming from um, and give, providing a bit more context of the educational system so that they can fairly review your your application if they're not if they don't have that level of sophistication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. A high school, an application from a high school where maybe you've never had one before can be. It's. I mean, I do want to assure them though that the admission counselors are always ready to do the research if needed. I'm yes, sure that's the case for are. you at Marist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, they're, they're, we we want to make sure, as I mentioned earlier, that everyone is getting a, a fair shot. So we, so one of the things that happens in the United States is that there isn't a centralized educational system in the United States. We have students applying from home schools, from private schools, from public schools, from all different types of districts and backgrounds, and it's our job to make sure that we are fairly evaluating those students and making sure that they are shining in the brightest light that they can be. So the same goes for our international students. We're making sure that we are doing our due diligence due diligence to make sure that we're assessing them at an academic level so that we're not setting a student up for failure, so that we know that they're going to be successful if they're being admitted to the college. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned when we just, when we talked before this particular, um, you know, this this show, um, that the extracurricular activities are really different. And I've, I've noticed that with yes. international, I have friends in Europe, and they're like, why does anybody care what he does outside the classroom? unless it's related to his major. And so that's very different here. So I was hoping you could dive into that a little bit. Absolutely. So uh, especially at an athletic level, we have Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three. Uh, the athletics and the, uh, the events that happen outside the classroom play a big role in the American educational system at the higher ed level. So many schools are providing an experience. It's not just educating the students in the classroom on a particular subject. It's expanding their minds in a a critical thinking type of way, but also providing opportunities for them to learn and grow and discover new passions outside the classroom. So if a student is coming from a culture where the extracurriculars are not exactly highlighted during the high school or secondary school period, that's okay. Uh, many schools want to make sure that they are they're they're bringing talented students to their campuses, and that also means students that have passion. So, if you're, if we have students that are perhaps working all the time and they don't have time to to get involved with things outside the classroom. That's totally fine. Uh, when we have students that are international and looking to apply to the United States, a lot of the times we get questions of, well, what do you like to see on the application outside the classroom? And the response is always, don't, don't get involved or try to put things on the application that you think we want to see. Get involved with things that, that you're passionate about and, and make sure that shines through because we have living and working communities here. There is 
a philosophy that we obviously we want to educate you as an educational system, but we want you to bring all your strengths and your un- uniqueness to our campus so that you can contribute to the, the larger educational experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's a broader experience beyond the classroom. Um, so what are some common pitfalls of families applying from overseas or, um, you know, what are some things that you see people doing based, you know, uh, maybe errors that they make um, based on misunderstanding of our system? Is there any any persistent myths you'd like to debunk or anything like that? Well, I think if, you, if just because you're applying from from abroad doesn't necessarily mean you're automatically going to be admitted to to that institution. So I think you have to take uh, take a serious look at the schools you're applying to and look at, especially if you're looking at highly selective schools, just make sure that you have an understanding of how many, how many applications they receive and how many students they, they admit to their school and what the likelihood is of, of you enrolling. <clears throat> and what I mean by that is also working with uh, your people that are are guiding you through this admission process, um, and really, and making sure that you're you're utilizing their their knowledge and helping you decide where where to apply. I think some of the pitfalls that our students fall through or fall into when they're applying is if there are things that are optional on the application, just take a hard look at those to see if if you, this is a school you really want to be attending that you you still submit some of that optional information. So for instance, we have a we have a question on our application that's the, you know, why why are you interested in Maris? And there and there are students that fill this out and some that don't and it's okay. It is optional. But if you really have done some work and looked into the institution and there are things that you're interested in, I would complete that. Uh, if you uh, are coming, as I mentioned earlier, from a educational system that is different uh, then make sure that you have some sort of explanation of of your grading system and sp- like specifically if a student is coming from a French country for inst- for instance the grading scale is is such that the highest scores are are rarely achieved uh, they're relegated for for extremely high performing students so helping the admission office understand that getting scores at a certain level even though it's not the highest is actually high achieving. So that in some ways that's that's a bit of a uh, some of the pitfalls that students can can fall into. Also understanding what the international student specific requirements are in some ways that that is relating to to language language requirements and language waivers. Some students just think because they they uh go to an English speaking school that they'll be waived from the English proficiency and that might not be the case. So looking at those specific nuances and then also adhering to the the guidelines uh, and deadlines of the of the application. That's sometimes we get things after uh, because the school systems are not aligned in such that the students are applying at the right time. So doing the research early and and, and understanding those deadlines is really important. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's all our time. But thank you so much, Sally. It's my pleasure. This was great and. Uh, I'm available if people want to find me on the website, at the Marist website, even if it's not about Marist. They have questions about applying to college and what we do with those letters of recommendation, what we do with those essays. I'm happy to help. So this is uh, great, and I appreciate you uh, having me on the show. Oh, absolutely. And everybody, again, that's Joe Jackalone. 
um, at Marist College. So you can do a, um, a web search and you'll find him. I found him easily on the website. So um, thanks again. All right. So now it's time for an ad, quick ad break. Do you use cosmetics? I'm not a big makeup person personally, so when I use it, I want it to look natural and I want anything I put on my skin to be made with high quality ingredients. So I was really excited when I was sent a sample box of Thrive Cosmetics spelled cause is spelled C-A-U-S-E medics on this one. So Thrive Cosmetics offers high performance products made with skin loving ingredients. Their clinically proven formulas highlight your best features with long lasting wear. And the products are formulated without parabens, sulfates, and phthalates. I don't even know what those are, but they do sound like things I don't want. Um, And Thrive Cosmetics doesn't just offer makeup. In fact, my favorite item in the box I received, this is one of the benefits of being um, a podcast host, um, is the Bright Balance 3-in-1 Cleanser. So it's a multitasking, pH-balanced, gentle formula that removes long-wearing, waterproof makeup and leaves your skin feeling soft, glowing, and never stripped or dry. I also had a lot of fun with the beautiful High Shine Lip Reviving Topper. So it looked really great, really natural on my lips, but just made them just look a little bit nicer. In addition, Thrive Cosmetics is vegan and cruelty-free, and for every product purchased, Thrive makes a donation to women dealing with homelessness, domestic violence, or fighting cancer. So they make donations to agencies helping women um, dealing with those issues. I really love it that they support these causes, as so many women are in at least one, if not two or three of these situations at some point in their life. So start thriving and help women in need today by going to thrivecosmetics.com slash collegecoach and use the code collegecoach for 15% off your first purchase. That's thrive, C-A-U-S-E, medics.com slash collegecoach code college coach for 15% off thrivecosmetics.com slash college coach code college coach. So now we'll be taking a short break, but when we return, Shannon and I will be answering listener questions. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. 
We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome, Shannon. Let's dig into the listener questions now. So, Shannon, I think I'm going to start. I'm going to ask you a question first. Does that sound good? That sounds perfect. All right, great. All right, so this first question is from Patrick, and it's pretty complicated. (laughs) So um, it'll just take me a minute to read it. So Patrick says, I will have two kids in college beginning with the 2021-2022 school year. As I understand the process, the need-based financial aid award for the 21-22 school year will be based on our 2019 tax return. My question is actually about the following school year when I submit the 22-23 FAFSA, Free Application for Federal Student Aid, based upon my 2020 tax return. That tax return will reflect significantly less income. As such, is the need-based financial aid that is provided by a university determined on an annual basis, or once my child is enrolled at the college, are they more or less stuck with the tuition bill that they are assigned in their freshman year? Yeah, so the answer is that students do need to reapply for financial aid each of their four years of school. Um, And so what will happen with, Patrick, your income decreasing Um, for the following year's aid application, you will naturally have greater aid eligibility, but the catch is that greater eligibility doesn't always equate to actually receiving more financial aid. Um, There are about 80 colleges in the country, out of about 4,000 colleges total, there's about 80 of them that do make the guarantee that they will meet the full calculated need of every student um, that enrolls in their college. Um, If you're curious what those 80 colleges are, we do have a list on our blog, um, which is at blog.getintocollege.com. If you go to our blog, search for most generous colleges, you'll see the list of 80 schools that guarantee they meet full need. So, Patrick, if either or both of your kids are attending one or uh, multiple of those schools, you will, in fact, know you will get more aid when your income decreases for, their, um, for that second year, the 22-23 
school year. Um, you'll have greater needs, so you'll get greater aid. At those 80 schools, that's a guarantee. But most colleges don't make that guarantee. So just because your need increases, it doesn't always mean your, your aid will increase. At some schools, it will. At some schools, it won't. And I would say probably the most common scenario in my experience is that colleges try to keep aid pretty consistent from year to year. Maybe, you know, giving you a little increase as tuition increases each year, but not necessarily the dramatic increase that your, you know, drop in income might lead you to believe that you'd receive. Um, but because it does vary so much from school to school, I think this is a conversation that you likely want to have with the financial aid office um, when deciding what college your younger child, at least, will attend. Um, I think he, Patrick put in the fine print that in 21, 22, he's going to have a freshman and a junior. Um, so I think kind of the ship has sailed for the older student. They're already enrolled. Um, but for the younger one, where you still have the opportunity to decide where they're going to enroll, um, you definitely don't want to enroll at a school that you won't be able to afford, you know, assuming that aid is going to increase next year because if, unless it's one of those 80 schools that guarantee it, it, it might not increase. Um, so I would email or you set up a time to chat with the, your child's assigned financial aid counselor at the school they're thinking of enrolling in. And, and the, the way it's set up is usually you will have one assigned counselor based on um, however they divide it up at that school. But I would have a conversation with them saying, you know, before you sign on the dotted line and enroll, you know, my child wants to enroll, but we just experienced this decrease in income, and I'm trying to figure out if we can actually afford your school. What can we expect next year when that lower income is reflected on my aid application? Um, and now, actually, as I'm saying it, as I kind of work through the, the, the timing in my head, I realize when you're applying for the 21-22 school year, your youngest first year, where it's, on default it's based on 2019 income, you're filling out those applications in the fall of 2020. So you've already experienced at that point the decrease in income. Um, so you can actually submit a financial aid appeal at that point, documenting uh, that your 2020 income is lower than what's on your FAFSA, and you can ask them to take it into account immediately. Um, a college is definitely allowed to make exceptions based on special circumstances that you might have, and they might actually consider your lower income right away for the first year if you ask them to, and then that kind of eliminates the problem uh, if they take it into account up front. So I would say definitely appeal your 21-22 aid offers based on the lower income and hope they take it into account up front. Um, by 22-23, the lower income is automatically going to increase your need. But again, it's not a guarantee that, it, that you're going to get your need met at most schools. So that's definitely a conversation to have up front so you can you know, plan properly and make sure that your youngest is actually enrolling at a school that, that you'll be able to afford. So that was it, was, it was a long question to begin with and an even longer answer, Sally. <laughs> yeah, as not usual, simple. It depends. There's, there's a lot going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully um, my question I, is easier. So, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I, yes, let's, let's hope. So um, Ellen asks, Sally, my grandson was just denied at his early decision choice, which happens to be an Ivy League school, despite being a triple legacy on both sides of the family. Wow. We know his numbers weren't as high as others, but the rest of his application was strong. 
Can you provide any insight into whether or not legacy status even matters anymore? So, uh, yeah, this is a complicated question because it, 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 it involves understanding how competitive the IVs ends. Uh, the IVs are. Right. So the short answer is that absolutely legacy is still a boost, but it's not a huge boost in most cases, right? It's actually a relatively yeah. small boost. So um, it's not going to be enough to make up for a deficit in the numbers. It's just not. If your numbers aren't there for the IVs, you're not getting in, um, you know, based alone on legacy. There can be some institutional priorities, like being an athlete, a recruited athlete, I should say, not just being an, a, an athlete, an average right. athlete is not enough. You have to be a recruited athlete. Uh-huh. If you're somebody that they want, you know, that can be a reason that you get in. And the reason for this is that the IVs have admit rates of below 10%, right? Sometimes we're talking 4%. Um, so a little bit of an advantage is never going to be enough to make up for a genuine deficit in terms of the numbers. It's just not going to be. So where is legacy helping then? Where legacy is helping is um, it makes sense if you're aware that most of the, that um, the Ivies, I mean, Harvard themselves has said they can invite a class. um, They could invite a class, uh, admit a class of all the students that they had denied. And that class would be just as strong as the class that they actually admitted. It's so hard to get into these schools that it's uh, that's kind of where legacy might help basically as if you are just as strong as all the really, really, really strong students in the pool. But then legacy might be that tiny little bit extra that moves you into the admit pile instead of your, um, you know, if you're otherwise sort of average in that pool, right? So below average in that pool, you're not going to get in with legacy. But if you're average in that pool, which is not an insult, being average in an Ivy League pool is, is not an insult. It's a compliment. It means you're in the noise, you're in the discussion. So then that's when legacy might help you. So based on how you've described it, I'm honestly not surprised at all that your um, grandson was not admitted. I think the good news is that there's so many great colleges out there. So while I'm sure it was painful for your family, uh, your grandson will probably not even care after a year. Um, because they'll be at a college that they love so much. So that's that's my fond hope for all of you. Absolutely. All right. So on to the next. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. You have a finance question for me? Yes, I do. I will read it now. And it's another long one. Luckily, the rest of them are a little shorter. So. All right. So. Mary says, I'm helping my older son prepare a college list. I ran net price calculators for various colleges for our financials for his first year. However, we also have a younger son who will be starting college a couple years later. So I also ran net price calculators for when we will have two kids in college. The prices in the second scenario vary widely by tens of thousands of dollars. In the first... Most schools' net price was roughly our expected family contribution. In the second, I would expect the number to go down, maybe not by half, but at least some. But for some colleges, and for some colleges it did, but in others they just added a a whole lot more loans. I'm wondering if you have any advice on how to consider expected net prices when you know you will eventually have more than one child in college. 
Yeah, so this is actually kind of similar to the first question I answered in that it is going to differ by school. So when you have two in college, you'll automatically have more need, but it's not guaranteed, again, that every college is going to meet your full need. Um, so when you saw calculators you know, just increasing loans when you said you had two in college instead of one, that would be an indication that they just don't have the institutional grant money available to meet your full need. So what they're doing is almost kind of disguising the fact that they're not meeting your need by awarding you, and you, listeners can't see me, but I'm making air quotes around awarding, <laughs> awarding you a whole bunch of loans. Um, so you'll see that if, as you start to get financial aid offers that a number of colleges do that. They don't want to show you an award letter with like a great big gap there. So they award a bunch of loans to fill that gap. Um, so I would say you can be fairly confident that the colleges whose net price calculators showed you a lot of loans, you can be confident that they are not going to be more generous with you when you have two in college. They're not going to increase grant money substantially. Um, and even at the schools whose calculators are showing you generous offers when you have two in college, you can't always trust that that's going to be the offer that you will get a couple of years later when you do end up having two in school um, because those calculators are designed to predict first-year aid. Um, so if you, they're telling you what you would get is if you came in as a first-year student with two already in college. But if you go in as a freshman with only one in college and limited aid eligibility at that point, the college might increase your aid two years later when there are two in college in your family. But their policy, like I mentioned in, in the first question, you know, might just be to keep aid consistent from year to year. So even though you'll naturally have greater need when there's two in school, not every college is going to automatically meet that need. So again, just like in the, in the first question, if it's going to make a difference to your enrollment decision before enrolling that, that older child, have a conversation with the aid office about what to expect, you know, two years from now when there's two in school. They might say, you know, yep, as your need increases, we're going to increase aid accordingly. Or they might say, sorry, you know, our policy, as long as need doesn't decrease, uh, our policy is to keep grant funding consistent from year to year, and then you can use that info to inform your enrollment decision. So, unfortunately, net price calculators, while they're great and it's a lot better than it used to be when we were totally going into the college application process blind and having no idea what, what aid uh, we would get. Um, so, net price calculators are, are a big improvement on that situation, but unfortunately, they don't tell the whole story. They don't respond to changes in circumstances that you might have in future years. Really, that's more of a conversation that you do have to have directly with the financial aid office. So it's not a simple answer. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And I have a question for you, Sally, from Terry. And this is actually in response to our... Um, an episode we did back in December, I think it was December 19th, so we did a segment on the new uh, College Board Landscape tool. Um, so Terry 
writes in, my daughter is a junior this year, so we're in the thick of college planning. Today's podcast sparked a couple of questions I was hoping you could answer. And the first is regarding that new college board landscape tool. What would a college admissions officer actually use the adversity score for? Okay, so... The adversity score is used, I mean, let's kind of back up. I just want to make sure that people know that under the holistic admission process, every student is going to be evaluated in the context, in their personal context. So we've talked a lot about the high school, for example. It's really important for us to know, you know, how... um, how much support is this student getting through their high school? Uh, when I worked at University of Chicago and Reed and Whittier, I would sometimes see really pretty significant differences in sort of the level of activities that maybe students were doing. Um, and and it was and often they could be those differences could be explained by simply the opportunities available to a student. They were maybe that student was going to a rural high school. Um, we'd see this at Chicago. We'd get students applying from downstate Illinois. Um, those students, you know, their big summer job was um, husking corn. I think it was called the tasseling corn, or I guess they're not husking <laughs> corn. They're just pulling the tassels off the top. And, you know, we weren't going to, since if you live in downstate Illinois in a small town, that is your option. That is your full option for summer employment. We were not going to expect that student to have a fancy internship. That's simply not fair to that particular student. So so we're trying to, so the, the point of... Um, the point of the landscape tool is just to give colleges more information about a student's circumstance, right, going above and beyond what maybe the high school is able to provide. And that can be really helpful, too, because even in a particular small town, it might be very mixed income. There might be one neighborhood that's quite well off, and there might be another neighborhood that tends to be very, very low income. And all that, inf- and, you know, all that information um, is going to be taken, is going to be very useful in understanding the full context of a student's opportunities um, in the same way that colleges pay attention to whether a student is first generation. Did this student's parents go to college? You know, all these things are taken into account. So this isn't going to change things in terms of how the process works. I want to be clear. It's just a little more information. Um, you know, that's, that's how I see the colleges using it. All right, gotcha. so we got an yeah, we got another question for you, Shannon, and this one is much shorter. <laughs> um, okay, we'll see if the answer is shorter, Sally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it should be because we're going to run out of time soon. So, all right. Okay. Um, okay, my son is trying to transfer to a different college for next fall. Does the financial aid process work the same as when he applied as a freshman? Yes, it essentially works the same. You're filling out the FAFSA form. You're maybe filling out the profile if the college is where he's applying require it. Um, Any school he's applying to, just check their website. It should detail their financial aid application process, but it will likely be identical to the freshman process. Um, The only likely difference is the due date. Uh, At many schools, the transfer deadline is a little bit later than the freshman deadline. Uh, They want to kind of get through reading all of the freshman applications, and then they'll move on to the transfer ones. Um, So I would see very commonly you might see transfer financial aid deadlines in March maybe instead of February, which would be a more typical uh, regular decision freshman 
uh, deadline. Um, so it's a little bit later. It's still coming up, though, by the time this episode airs. So um, you want to make sure to check the school's websites, get on filling out the financial aid applications. But the process should work just about the same. Uh, I would just say one sort of warning um, for any folks um, looking to apply as a transfer student is that many schools just simply have less funding available for transfer students. So that is just something to prepare for. You know, if the money is going to make a difference to where uh, you're going to enroll, you definitely want to research what scholarships the school might have available for transfers, maybe kind of cast a wider net in hopes of, of getting some funding. But other um, then that it should really be the same basic process, same forms you're filling out. Just check the, the school's websites to confirm exactly what they need and when. Okay, great. And do we have time for another one for you, Sally? You know, I think unfortunately we don't. So I'm oh. going to have to close it off there. But I'm looking at the next question, which is about sort of the purpose of supplemental essay questions, et cetera, and thinking that might make a whole good segment. So, um, Terry, we will be getting to this eventually. I just want to assure you. So, um, all right. Thank you so much, Shannon. I really appreciate it. You are so welcome. It's my pleasure. All right. And um, I want to thank um, Joe Jackalone as well. Um, sorry, it's spelled Giacolone, so I keep wanting to mispronounce it. Um, all right, so everyone, next show is gonna next week's show is gonna be great. By the way, our colleague Lise Krantz, admission veteran, will be going over highlights from the National Association of College Admissions. 2019 State of the College Admissions Report, such as the growth in application volume, the national average acceptance rate, and increases in early decision, early action, and waitlist activity. So if you want to know the direction the world of admission is headed in, is headed, listen in. Um, finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website. You can also download every show for free on iTunes. And mentioning iTunes, I wanted to bring up that to celebrate the fifth anniversary of our podcast, we're holding a very special contest for our loyal listeners. So until February 25th, uh, five days from when this show is going to air, every listener who review who reviews us on Apple Podcasts will be entered in a raffle to win two free hours of college counseling with host and former UPenn admission officer, Elizabeth Heaton. So just enter, just do a review and you'll be automatically entered, no extra effort needed. And the winner will be announced on the March 5th episode. So um, definitely do that, what an amazing opportunity. Um, all right, so last little, last few comments. If you check out the archives, um, if you need to kind of look through, you're curious if we've done certain topics, you'll find past shows in the archives featuring our core office hour segments, including one on five things juniors should do now to get started on the college admission process. Um, and uh, last, don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific time. So check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.